The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. dedicated to discussing politics, literature, philosophy, science fiction, food, art, and of course religion from a traditional Catholic viewpoint. I'm your host for today's uh, show, Piers Hugo, uh, and I will hopefully be joined by our co-host Nicholas Swansbutter a little later. 
Tonight, we will be discussing uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, whose feast day it is this coming Thursday, the 7th of March. And we are very fortunate, once again, to be joined by His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan to discuss the angelic doctor. Restoration Radio is underwritten by True Restoration Press, which has books for sale at truerestorationpress.com and streaming videos for download at truerestorationmedia.com. While some of our costs are underwritten by True Restoration, we are genuinely dependent on donations from our many listeners who appreciate what we are attempting to do with this apostolate. And if you want to support our efforts, please do donate via our PayPal link, which is at truerestoration at gmail.com. Um, our guest today probably needs no introduction since he has become something of a, a regular guest for us and has very generously agreed to do a number of shows in this season of uh, Restoration Radio. Um, His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan was born in 1951 in Detroit, Michigan and began preparing for the priesthood in 1965 at the Archdiocesan Minor Seminary in Detroit. Uh, from 1973, he began studying at Ecom, um, uh, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre's seminary, and was ordained a priest in 1976. He left, um, forced out of the SSPX in 1983 as part of the Nine, over his refusal to say the Reformed uh, John the Twenty-Third uh, Missal and uh, Liturgy, and has continued to work in his. Uh, missionary apostolate at St. Gertrude the Great in Cincinnati, Ohio, since then being ordained bishop by Bishop Mark Pivarunas in 1993 and continuing to serve not only uh, his uh, parish in Cincinnati but also uh, other traditional Catholics in America but also outside in Mexico, particularly France, Belgium and Italy. We're very lucky to have you with us again, uh, Your Excellency. Thank you for coming once more. Well, thank you for your very kind welcome here. It's my pleasure. Today we are hoping to continue our liturgical series of shows by considering one of the truly great saints of the Catholic Church, St. Thomas Aquinas, um, whose feast day, as I said, will be this Thursday, 7th of March. Your Excellency, could you summarize for us uh, the life of St. Thomas Aquinas? What importance is there, for example, in the period in which he lived which uh, James Joseph Walsh, in his uh, wonderful book, uh, The 13th Century, Greatest of All Centuries, described as indeed the greatest of centuries, um, the 1200s. In what sense was he a man of his times, and why is his life and work relevant for Catholics still today, do you think? With apologies to Dickens, I, I, Piers, I think you can say that his times were the best of times and the worst of times. Uh, <laughs> you certainly couldn't apply that to the era of the French Revolution, but you could to the 13th, which uh, Walsh and other authors famously call the greatest of centuries. I have to confess that that title grates on me a little bit because mm. um, it's the greatest of centuries yet, but at the same time... Whew, there were so many difficulties and so many problems, and you see that in the life, especially the early life of St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas. So he's um, born at uh, Dry Rock, Rocca Secca in Italy near Naples, and um, he's got what used to really impress people, and, and I'm sure uh, those who are in the Monarchist Club would still be very impressed by all this royal imperial blood running through his veins and through his grandmother. He's related to the Anglo-Saxon uh, kings of England and he's related to 
Frederick uh, Barbarossa, not not really a, a great recommendation. The kings of Seville, uh, kings of, uh, of of Castile and Spain, and in fact, he's got all this royal blood. And his father is the Count of Aquino, and um, they. Uh, well, first of all, you have to say there's always this one charming story, which is just a story. But I love the story, and I always tell it to the children each year, and it tells us something. Oh, and it ties in the same with other saints. The story is that as a little, as a toddler, he had gotten a hold of a precious parchment holy card. They weren't mass-produced then. Mm. Uh, Parchment was uh, very, very expensive, and books were rare and highly treasured. And I, I see this little holy card as something beautifully illuminated and has the opening words of the Ave Maria on it. He gets a hold of it from somebody or another, and of course, as a baby, right away, he wants to put it in his mouth, and so he does. And then and then everyone's horrified, and they try to take the, the precious little holy card away from him, and he refuses to give it up. He holds on to it with a sort of a, with a, with a placid determination, very Thomas Aquinas. Then he eats the holy card as a baby would. He puts it in his mouth, and he actually swallows it. So he swallows the Ave Maria. <laughs> That's... Um, that's Thomas Aquinas for you. He's, you know, he's he's placid. He 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 is quiet, but he's utterly firm and unmoved once he has reached the truth. And, and that also shows his very great love and his very great devotion to uh, to Our Lady. When he's about five or six, his parents send him as a boy oblate to the Benedictines, the great Benedictines of uh, Monte Cassino, for his uh, early education, and also with an eye on setting him up in a church career, uh, something that would be worthy of him actually to be uh, the Lord Abbot of this very, the, the great monastery, the greatest Benedictine Abbey in the world, Monte Cassino. Um, and he is there, and he is taught by the Benedictines. Of course, that's going to, that's going to form his, his early life, the, the monastic life conventual, the chanting of the office, a life of, a life of quiet study, and of, um, and of prayer. Um, one of his brothers was destined for uh, the prelacy, and that's of course, that was, of course, the idea in the medieval world. <clears throat> Somebody was, um, people were married off, and the sons and the daughters were married off for, for um, some political advantage, some benefit that that, that might come. In the case of uh, Thomas Aquinas, it was it was partly to make peace with the Benedictines, because I think his father or some other close relative had uh, invaded it, Yeah, so it was a way then a sort of, of offering, uh, offering a peace token, and so Thomas goes, and um, meanwhile there's an effort to make one of his, his, uh, his other brothers an abbot of an important monastery, and that doesn't work. It's squelched by the Pope. It's, it's not hasn't been done. Uh, the proper way, and the, uh, his election is, is annulled. So now it becomes even more important that uh, Thomas should uh, should be the the the, the, the prelate, the, the the man of the church, of the family. Uh, things are going along fairly well until <clears throat> Frederick II invades Monte Cassino. See, this is the point about greatest of centuries. Yes, it was the greatest of centuries. There were there were. Saints were a dime a dozen. They were all over the place, and these glorious orders were being founded, and all this truth was being taught, and God was being so glorified, the building of the great Gothic cathedrals. Men believed in God. On the other hand, 
men were just as bad as they ever were, and they were worse because they had God all over the place, as it were. Uh, they had they had the saints, and they had the cathedrals, and they had the chant, and they had the mass. They had everything. They had no excuse. And so, some, in effect, a relative of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, and of uh, and of the the, the, the wretched German emperors <clears throat> invades Monte Cassino and he's got to go, but this is God's will. You see, you see if you're sitting back, you see the whole thing. The, the abbot, although the abbot's in exile, takes care about his student. He says he's too intelligent, he's too gifted. You've got to allow him to continue his studies, and so he is sent to the uh, Dominicans at uh, their new university. Of, uh, of Naples, and he does his um, quadrivium and his trivium there, um, mm-hmm. and studies for studies for maybe seven years, something like that. And there he's introduced to the Dominicans, and he falls in love with them and finds that that's his vocation. <clears throat> there was a canonization mass very solemnly celebrated for Saint Dominic at Monte Cassino. I guess the monks right. had returned in the meantime, and that and that they say that was the moment when he decided that he would become a Dominican, and he um, res- resolves. He receives the the habit. He enters the order, and then the family is angry and hurt and outraged and shocked that he could do anything so unworthy. Now, what was the problem here? The problem was that they were a new religious order. And they were officially, well, they, well, they were, were canons, that is to say they were, as St. Dominic was, dedicated to living in a monastery and chanting the divine office every day. They were officially mendicants or beggars like the Franciscans. And that was just not worthy of a Count of Aquino's son. He just he didn't do things like that. He was supposed to be a high and a mighty prelate, a great man, a man of the church, but a great man, the abbot of Monte Cassino. Um, and uh, indeed, they go to the great. Eventually, after he, after uh, he gets he gets out of uh, his eighteen months of imprisonment, they go to the the great Pope Innocent the Third, and he offers as a kind of a compromise. He says, "Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't you be a Dominican? And because I'm the Pope, I'll let you also be have the title of uh, <laughs> Abbot of Monte Cassino and the, and Saint Thomas in his simplicity. That's the theme that that we we see throughout the whole life of this yeah. of this great intellect." Uh, and this great man of of God, in his simplicity, says, "No, that would never work. It just it just wouldn't work. I've got this. And this is my call from God." So he's he's kidnapped by his own brothers. He's treated very cruelly. Um, his habit is taken away from him. Somehow, through a sister, he does get another habit again, and he gets his books, his beloved books, so he can read and, and study and pray during these long months of captivity. And then there's that very incident, uh, interesting incident that's uh, certainly worth talking about because of the, uh, the purity and the chastity yeah. of uh, our saint. So the brothers having tried everything else, and the the sisters and the mother having tried their their tears and their pleading to, then the then his his wicked worldly brothers introduce uh, a woman of uh, of a sinful life. That we like the discreet way of saying it, a woman of a sinful life. And um, she uses all of her uh, not inconsiderable feminine lures to make him sin. And he, his response is is a is childlike. It's simple and it's to the point. He takes a, a, a torch, uh, lights it at the fireplace, and he runs after her with a burning torch. <laughs> she wasn't expecting that. She was interested. 
she was interested in kindling other fires, but certainly not that one. And um, he drives her out of the room, and then, for good measure, St. Thomas on the back of the uh, the door that this woman has slammed behind her, he, he puts a cross. And then, exhausted from his effort and uh, his trial, he falls asleep. He has a dream in which two angels come and bind him with a white cincture, symbolizing his victory over impurity and his control of the of the lower faculties. And uh, from then on, they say he never had any temptations against what is rightly called holy purity. He is the angelic doctor. He was called the angelic doctor even in his life. This that's not not only because of. of holy purity, but for other reasons as well. But you see, this is sort of a, a basis of it. He escapes eventually. The Pope offers a compromise. Um, public opinion makes it such that uh, he has to be allowed to join the, uh, to, stay, to stay with the Dominicans, and then he's sent to Cologne and to Paris. He has St. Albert the Great as his teacher, and then he himself becomes the great, um, the great well, you see, another interesting point I wanted to make about Thomas Aquinas is that he's a um, he's um, he's a revolutionary. Isn't that interesting? You wouldn't think of him as a revolutionary, but he was. In some sense, he was the most mild-mannered and gentle of revolutionaries, but and the most intellectual, considered slow and methodical of revolutionaries. Well, they often are slow and methodical, but he he was a revolutionary. And so he, he enters this new order <clears throat> that is blazing this, uh, this new form of life, uh, the, uh, the life of uh, preaching, because you really couldn't count on the standard priest or even the standard prelate to preach. Nobody preached. And so if the, people, if the priests weren't preaching and preaching well, uh, then the, the faith is not really being taught and passed on. And that, that's, how we, that's how you get heresy. So uh, as the answer to the Albigensian heresy, which is the essential anti-life heresy, uh, our, our Lord raises up the Dominicans. And he becomes, uh, and St. Dominic establishes this new sort of revolutionary way of life, which to the old nobility, because it's a new order and because they were technically mendicants or beggars, would be just not worthy of his noble blood. So in that sense, he's a revolutionary. And then, then, the, then the next stage is a revolutionary too, because of the of the crusades and because of um, well, a lot of really a lot of reasons. He becomes familiar with uh, uh, with the, the writings of of Aristotle. He he begins this, this school of thought and of writing called Scholasticism, and <clears throat> discovers in Aristotle the perfect vehicle for the calm, logical, most thorough presentation of all the truths of Catholicism. But because it was a new approach, it was, of course, controversial, and then he was condemned, and at some point his writings uh, were burnt. Um, But he he wins the day, as he always does, by making, um, making use of what God sends him in a very simple way, his intellect, uh, the, the knowledge of a pagan writer and uh, the, the idea of, of creating some sort of a, of, of a vehicle, simply a vehicle, in order uh, to, um, in the, the language of the time, to express all of these, all of the, all of the profundity of the Catholic truth. And then that's something about Thomas Aquinas, which is perennial, that will never change. So you have the writings of Thomas Aquinas 
at the Council of Trent, Bishop Samron likes to cite this, and it's so true, mm-hmm. right next to the sacred scriptures, right next to the sacred scriptures. Yeah. And then this effort of um, Pope Leo the uh, Thirteenth, in particular, to revitalize the study of Thomism and to make it again to be the, the means that is used for the uh, expression of the Catholic faith and for the training of future, future priests, of, um, of seminarians. I often think about another saint. Well, it's occurred to me sometimes about another saint. Um, you know, they say that the curé of ours had such a hard time in the seminary and he just wasn't very gifted intellectually. But yeah. he never had a chance. He had to study corrupt German and French philosophers who had nothing to do with the, uh, the objective uh, of the objective Thomism of, uh, of, of the church's philosophy. And no wonder he had a hard time wrapping his very holy brain around it because it wasn't true. It simply wasn't true. It was, there was an awful lot of, of falsehood there. So in that sense, Thomas Aquinas, this revolutionary, is at the same time, um, you know, the, um, this is the ruling party in Mexico calls itself the party of the institutional revolution, which yeah. is a funny title, PRI. And, and, um, yeah. Right. So, but, and of course, high, highly corrupt and, and all, all mm. the rest and, and anti-Christian. But that's what, that's, in a sense, if you will, perhaps that's the legacy of Thomas Aquinas. It's an insti- institutionalized revolution, but the most gentle of revolutions, because there's this, uh, this seamless continuity from the Benedictine life to the life of a friar preacher, from the, um, the uh, previous mode of the church's uh, work uh, study, that is to say, uh, the, the, the scriptures themselves and almost nothing but the scriptures, now to the scholastic method, which um, uh, uses uh, a pagan source of wisdom simply a, a, as a way to produce, uh, to, to preserve, produce, and to explain Catholic wisdom. So in, in that sense, he's not a revolutionary, not at all. Uh, and then he, he really does stand out in this, in this era of the 13th century, this era of, of, of saints. He stands out truly as one of the greatest of the saints. Well, I've talked a long time. <laughs> Forgive you have, me. you've given I, a very I, thorough uh, <laughs> introduction to the life of our, of our saint I, today. There's just a couple of things you mentioned, uh, mentioned that sure. uh, occurred to me to ask you about. I mean, you were talking about how the curé d'art uh, had difficulty in the seminary, and I was thinking of the... Um, the nickname that St. Thomas acquired when he was studying in Cologne with uh, St. Albert the Great of the Dumb Ox, because yeah. he was so humble uh, that he refused until pushed to engage in the kind of disputations that would go along amongst the younger students, to the degree that one of the uh, students took pity on him and decided to give him private lessons mm-hmm. and teach him all you know the lessons of each day because he was clearly unable to understand until this young student um, fell foul, foul of one of the scripture, uh, uh, one of the, the lessons that they had had to learn that day, and St. Thomas very gently and very humbly explained it to him, upon, mm-hmm. upon which point he decided that he wanted to be St. Thomas's <laughs> disciple, <laughs> rather than the other way around. Instead, yes. And how, he, and how later on, I, I believe when he was presenting his doctoral thesis in Paris, um, uh, uh, with uh, St. Albert the Great in attendance, how mm. partly on purpose to keep him humble and, and because it's, it's the mode of scholastic dissertation, you should argue, and then partly out of a genuine resentment on the part of some of the doctors who were there at the university, he is accused of, 
of pride. He's accused of not being humble at all and of, and of being a, a revolutionary and innovator. And he just he answers in all simplicity. He simply says, I can't see any other way to answer these difficulties. And that's, um, that's, that's so Thomistic, if you will. That's so much the spirit. It's humble. But it's true because truth is humility, after all. And it's all very calm, and it's all measured, and there are no emotions are engaged here. It's all very, very, again, it's all very, very simple. Yeah. And it's interesting hearing you talking about uh, his use of Aristotle, who, of course, had been quite a controversial figure uh, and, and remained yeah. controversial for the next hundred years or so. Oh, yes. Uh, because St. Thomas also, I mean, he, in, in terms of this quiet revolutionary that you've uh, outlined, he also continually uses the fathers of the Church, particularly St. Augustine and, and Dionysius, whose, whose work he, he continually, in fact, he, apparently he cites Dionysius more than he does Aristotle in the summer, which gives the impression that he's a man who's deeply versed in, in the literature and thinking of the Church, and yet can see the... In a value that there is in, in a pagan philosopher like Aristotle for making clear a sense of what the yes. Church teaches, uh, which is then, um, then, incredible. Then the other then the other thing appears that we have to say about him right away is what he said about himself that he learned far more from his prayer than he did yes. from any of his books. Um, so what, what does that mean from his prayer? Uh, Saint Dominic was not willing to establish a group of, of preachers, in effect, who were going to be uh, left to their own devices when it came to prayer, because then eventually the preacher will be busy, and the preacher may get proud, and the preacher may no longer pray. And so he has, uh, as the basis of their life, the a form of the monastic life, what we call the canonical life, that is to say they live together, the friars do, and they chant the divine office. Their prayer is the sublime inspired prayer of the church, essentially our Lord's prayer, which is the Psalms, and then, then the hymns and the other uh, lessons of the divine office. That's what feeds his prayer. And it's interesting, too, to think about, it's interesting for me to think about um, you know, the medieval idea of time, so different from ours. We're busy and we run from one place to another. And probably for most of our listeners, for most of our clergy too, just to be able to, quote-unquote, get in our prayers on a given day, even the bare minimum of maybe the rosary or chaplet, the five decades, and some spiritual reading, a little meditation, that's already a lot, much less any of the divine office. Um but Thomas Aquinas dedicated, and, and, and generously, because it was, it was how they lived, everybody did, for centuries and centuries and yeah. centuries, maybe up to five hours a day, in the, in the solemn chanting of the divine office, and then in addition to that, and the mass of the day, and then in addition to that, then there would be his own quiet prayer of meditation, probably more along the lines of what we call Lexio Divina, the, the study of uh, and the praying over of the scriptures, essentially, and then the fathers mm. of the church. And that's what fed him. That's what nourished him. That's what gave him his his lights and his insights. That's that's what we mean when we say that he got more out of prayer than he did out of uh, uh, the the books 
that he had at his uh, at his disposition. This was his life. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know, they would, they would get up at midnight and they would chant matins because in the medieval world, you usually got up and you had a little break from your sleep around midnight. It was a normal thing for the night to be divided into two. It wasn't viewed so much as a penance. It was just mm-hmm. you were up anyway, so you, you should pray. Um, and then then the whole day would be uh, would be divided into times of prayer and then and times of work. Uh, intellectual work and of study, and then perhaps preaching. And one mustn't forget that Thomas Aquinas was himself a great preacher, and they say that he preached with unction, and they held his audience spellbound. So he's a kind of a preacher that um, the saints who are fussy about preachers, like St. Alphonsus Liguri, would have liked, because he connected with the people. Of course, that was the point of the friars' preachers, to connect with the people to make it so that it could be understood and then put into practice and essentially to force people to be good uh, by by filling them with the Holy Ghost. And that's what he did. He preached in this famous course of sermons at St. Peter's Basilica in uh, Rome, and he preached really wherever he was. And he preached to very great success, which means that his sermons were uh, were popular, and maybe in, in, in the very best sense of the term, so there's probably a distinction to be made between his his writings, which uh, would be difficult for the average Catholic yeah. or even the average clergyman to sit down and to study. Uh, the seminarians uh, have to study the Summa; they have to quote unquote study on Thomas Aquinas in in their years of philosophy and theology. He's the church's common teacher. Yet at the same time, to uh, for anyone else to get into maybe the Summa is um it's a bit of a maze and it's uh it's a bit confusing i'd like to tell at this point if i may pierce this wonderful story that um chesterton tells and this is one of the books that i'd recommend chesterton's the dumb ox yeah. he tells it in in his uh, introductory note to his biography reflections on the life of uh, saint thomas aquinas about a, a woman uh whom he knew who uh, got a, a book of selections from Thomas Aquinas, such as are still in print today, along with a commentary. And she opened it up, and she started to read very hopefully under the section uh, with the innocent heading, The Simplicity of God. She then, he, he writes, laid down the book with a sigh and said, well, if that's his simplicity, I wonder what his complexity is like. <laughs> so then... He, he, he was with all, with all respect to that excellent Thomistic commentary. I have no desire to have this book laid down at the very first glance with a similar sigh. <laughs> um, but um, uh, but I think that's that's the, the point though of one of the, one of the gifts of this of this essentially very very simple saying. He was simple as God is simple, and I think maybe our working definition of simple is to be. Uh, not complex, not divided, and in that sense, he had that simple view of God with one one divine nature. He had a simple view of everything in in the light of God. He simplified. It seems that's very very complex, and all of his distinctions and all the answers to his arguments. But at the same time, it's essentially simple. And in another way, would he be simple in his presentation of Catholic truth? Um, in preaching, another that would that would have been different than at the same time from uh, from his writing. But that's uh, 
So that's for, for, for me a sort of a charming story. And it's true. It's yeah. true that that's that, that, yeah. that's how yeah. that how, how that would go. <laughs> I mean, the the problem, if it is a problem indeed, um, with Saint Thomas is that he was so gifted in so many different ways. I mean, he he as you, as you rightly pointed out, he's the common doctor of the church, the greatest of the scholastic philosophers and theologians. Uh, but I suppose for the ordinary Catholic in the pew, so to speak, he's even if they don't know it, he's more famous to them as the composer of some of the great hymns of the church, the Office of Corpus Christi. Uh, of course, he, he wrote other offices, didn't he? I think he wrote the the proper office of St. Augustine for the Dominican Rite, and um, okay. wrote some lovely prayers to say before and after Mass. And indeed, he wrote, he I believe, many prayers for himself for absolutely everything he did during the day. So he was a great poet, even though he, he uh, he's not normally thought of being a poet. Um, so this is a man with many talents, and I wondered... Out of his many achievements, this is probably a, a ludicrously simplistic question. <laughs> which do you think uh, his greatest now? Which stand out, other, perhaps well, other than the well, summer? Yeah, I would say that um, in that same spirit of simplicity, as Scripture says, "It uncoported facere ilam non amitre." You have to do this, but don't let the other thing go either. Mm-hmm. In his great simplicity, you can say that, um, of course, he was a poet. How could he not have been a poet? And if you want to see the um, popularization, and at the same time the the sublim how sublime sublimation of of his uh, theology, why then go to his poetry, go to his hymns in honor of the Blessed Sacrament. So in the say in the Laudation, on the sequence for the Mass of Corpus Christi, mm. you have. All of his, all of the church's Eucharistic theology, beautifully expressed in in a way that's charming and poetic and elevating and magnificent. Father Martindale, in his little life, uh, in his little life of uh, Thomas Aquinas, some anthology, says that um, still today, of course during his era, and and I could say still today, the tradition hasn't died out. Um, most Catholics know by heart some snatches of his hymns mm-hmm. the the, uh, the the good bits which are sung at benediction every and that's that's our effort to make children to learn them by heart and uh, so we go around singing thomas aquinas mm-hmm. we sing the o salutaris and then the tantum ergo everybody knows them by heart as long as they're sung to the right old-fashioned melody that people remember mm-hmm. then everyone can sort of chime in and think how wonderful is that what a key to to understanding because uh, he wants to he's such a eucharistic saint he wants to as, mm-hmm. as he did with some writing or another you know the story of him taking the scroll to the altar to our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, he takes it to the altar and he presents it to our Lord. That he wants to take everything that he's done to the Blessed Sacrament, which is the, as he points out in his magnificent teaching about the Eucharist, is the heart and the center of everything. Um, all the other sacraments uh, have some essential relationship, according to St. Thomas, to the Blessed Sacrament. So he takes it to our Lord. Um, so you have everything. Uh, in effect, in a, uh, in, in, in a Eucharistic sense, uh, and then everything is, is indeed brought to our Lord, and then that brings me to that uh, to that wonderful um, apparition that he had 
our Lord uh, comes down to him from the cross over the altars, Bene scripsisti de me toma, uh, you know, quid vis. Thou hast written well of me, Thomas, what wouldst thou have? And this wonderful, beautiful, again, very poetic, uh, terse, poetic, but also very prayerful response, which I think would make a good aspiration for people to use. Non nisi te domine, non nisi te. Nothing but thee, O Lord, nothing but thee. Yeah. That's, uh, that's all I want for a reward. That's all I want for my life. That's all I need for eternity. That's, and again, this, this wonderful simplicity. So at the end of the day, there's all of, all of this, and that, but at the end of the day, as they say, well, that just, 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 there's just thee, O Lord. That's all I desire, just thee. Yes, he, he, he did have that special uh, gift of succinctly putting things. I, um, when you were giving that uh, little anecdote about him um, responding to our Lord's uh, offer, um, I was thinking of his sister asking him how to get into heaven. And his response was one word, Valle, will it? That's right, will it. <laughs> uh, yes, will it. If you, if you will it, then you can. You have to want yeah. to go first. <laughs> yes. such, so simple, but yet so full of the true doctrine of the church. Right, and that's certainly uh, a good a good example of the um, uh, the Sapientia Sanctorum, the wisdom of the saints. It's um, short, and because it is short and to the point, it's um, it's witty. Uh, what, yeah. Then there's 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 this other story that that struck me uh, about about his sister too. Um, asked by his sister what he uh, what he desired above all other things, he, he answered to die well. Mm-hmm. And then um, she asked him once, well, um, what was paradise like? Until you have earned it and won it, you will never be able to know it. That's very domestic. You mm-hmm. see those, 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 those ponderous phrases, each one worth a tremendous amount of meditation. And they come one after another. Uh, would uh, you know each each phrase would be worth it maybe a day at least a good day just meditating until you have earned it and won it you will never be able to know it yet at the same time there's there's a certain wit there that reminds me of the wit of um of uh, a saint who is in, in one sense quite different in another sense quite similar saint Teresa of the child jesus mm. the modern saints um who the, you know, the, her sisters were worried about how she was going to die, and um, and what she would die of, and they wanted her to have a sort of a glorious death in, a, in, in hagiographic terms, you know. And she said, "What am I going to die of? I suppose I will just die of dying. I'll die of death. That's it." <laughs> and that's uh, that's again that's a, that there's a simplicity, but the profundity. It's very very deep. At the same time, but there's a little sense of irony there and a little sense of uh, of humor. Obviously, with Thomas Aquinas, you get that maybe a, le- a little bit less than with a, than with the other saints. But just as you get sublime poetry in the mix, at the same time, you would get a certain amount of irony and a certain amount of humor and great simplicity. Very, I'd like to. I think I'd like to stress that very, very great. Uh, great uh, yeah, I mean, it's there in his other works as well. I mean, going back to the office of Corpus Christi. I mean, the responsories at, at, at Matins, which just draw a verse from the Old Testament and a verse from the New yeah, Testament, yeah, and just yeah. in the most simple ways demonstrate the absolute unity of faith yes. uh, around the idea of the, the, the Blessed Sacrament of the Eucharist. It's very, incredible. very simple, and, and then with our with our melodies as well as with the text itself, you have to say it's sheer poetry. It's mm. sheer poetry and the highest possible art and the highest possible worship 
of God. And, and so this is, the, this is the putting of our faith, of our theology, of what we study and learn into practice in the very best sense. And at the same time, this is how we're going to learn more. This is how we're going to retain what we have learned. And this is how we'll put it into practice. Because he, he takes us, again, it's Eucharistic, it takes us to the altar. He takes us to the Blessed Sacrament. That's true. Um, there's something almost miraculous, I was thinking, in his uh, working with Scripture as well, the Eucharist, but his, his Catena Aurea, in oh, which yeah. I understand he, many of the quotations, it's clear actually from editors who have edited the work, that he must have had memorized yeah. So he he he's apparently learned the Bible off by heart when when he was locked up by his brothers mm-hmm. in his parents' castle. But he he when he went from different convent to convent, he must have read many of the patristic writings and uh, incorporated them so closely into his memory that he he could almost write the Catena, you know, straight out. And in the way, the, way, the very simple way he he draws all of the teachings together uh, as he goes through verse by verse. I suppose that's a, sim- a kind of an analogous simplicity in his work which yes, is seemingly nearly miraculous I can't think of another person who could have done it so well no uh, yeah. just the, the sure mental ability the ability of memory but the approach itself I think that uh, his devotion to sacred scripture his memorization of it and his and his employment of sacred scripture is illustrative of um, how he is not a revolutionary he's more of a bridge so they say um, of Bernard of Clairvaux, for example, that he's the last of the fathers and the, in the Cistercian school of spirituality with the preaching of St. Bernard is um, it's all scripture. It's, it's all scripture all the time. But what St. Bernard does is similar to what St. Thomas Aquinas does, that he is profoundly meditated on these texts that he knows, which he's sung, which he's lived, and the Holy Ghost enables him to draw these insights, insights again with great unction and great beauty, on great devotion, um, and then for him, that's everything. With the exceptions, that Saint Thomas then goes a little bit further because because of his of his um, knowledge of the fathers of the church, and uh, the sermons uh, of the of the saints, and then then as I say, uh, then the the employment of even of even a pagan as as a means of mm-hmm. being able to produce to to portray accurately correctly the great the- uh, theological truths of the faith. That continuity within uh, revolution that you were talking about yeah, earlier. Yeah, right. very, very For those of you so. uh, just joining us, you're listening to Restoration Radio. Our uh, topic today is the common saint, the, the angelic doctor, St. Thomas Aquinas, whose feast day is this Thursday. And our guest today, once again, is uh, His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. Uh, I'm your host, uh, Piers Hugill. Unfortunately, it's only me holding the fort today. Um, so are we unable to take um, calls, but hopefully that will be a possibility again in future shows. Um, we've been talking about um, his work, his written work, uh, his, his, his office, the hymns he's written, um, his summa, the most famous and, and fantastic uh, summary, as his name suggests, of his teaching. Um, however, one of the most dramatic episodes in St. Thomas's life, and we've considered many already, was the startling revelation he received while saying Mass on the Feast of St. Nicholas towards the end of his life, 1273, after which time it seems he remained unable to dictate, dictate or write another syllable of the Summa. 
his confessor, Father Reginald, uh, complained to him that he, he ought to carry on, and he's said to have responded, quote, All that I have written appears to me as so much straw after the things that have been revealed to me. I hope in the mercy of God that the end of my life may soon follow the end of my labors. Um, end quote. This is this is incredible, and I think it still baffles many people. What do you think is the significance of this episode? What does this tell us about St. Thomas, his, his refusal to continue with the summer after this, this great ecstatic revelation that he had near the end of his I think life? It, yeah, I, I think it, it tells us of some, it's a discreet reference to um, some Pauline experience with St. Paul. You know, I was lifted up to the third heaven. And I saw, I saw, I heard things that's not given to man to utter. So now, <clears throat> in the light of God, the simplicity and the truth of God, some little tiny foretaste of beatitude, he realizes that all of his efforts are, as he says, but straw. They're nothing, nothing at all. So he sees um, the emptiness of his attempt to uh, capture God and to put it down into words. Saints always end up being silent and uh, he so he wants to be no one has to silence him he wants to be silent silent before god that's um, a higher form of um contemplative prayer in um the unitive way and uh saint thomas aquinas has reached uh, as some of the highest degrees of this union with god that, that, that that's possible for a soul so now he sees that his, 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 all of his efforts um, are as nothing in comparison with the reality. And how could they be? God is infinite and man is finite. Yeah. So, um, so that's, that, that's his very, that's his beautiful and very appropriate response. Yeah. Um, so in a funny way, although this man was also uh, one of the great scholars, intellectuals, philosophers of his life, he also is one of the great mystics of the Church. And, and some writers, for example, Father Garrigou Lagrange, have likened him and compared him in his writing with St. John of the Cross, for example, who's oh, yes, very the, much the so. mystical doctor. Um, not least because, again, maybe this is a, a facet of his simplicity and his humility, St. Thomas Aquinas seems to teach that even we, ordinary, humble Catholics, can strive for, um, as it were, mystical union with God, that there is nothing holding us back, if we only will it, as he says, if we only love God enough. Yes. What, what does St. Thomas, do you think, understand by the mystical life that we're, we're meant to, to um, seek after? What is this perfection well, that, we, that he teaches? Well, there's a, there's a, because he's the common doctor, there's, a, there's, there's this common teaching of, of the ways of God in the soul, with the soul. How, um, after the first uh, initial burst of love and of affection and... Uh, Monsignor Benson says, "Exchange of gifts uh, with the soul." Then, then, then comes the soul's purification, the purgative way, and then comes the soul's um, gradual illumination, so that God makes the soul to to see things from God's point of view and to see things which she, the soul, could never have figured out, as it were, on her own. And then, finally comes the beginning with what we call ordinary contemplation, the beginning of, of the unitive way, of, of the union of, of, of the soul with our Lord. I, of course, you know, these, are, these are profound, deep, mystical truths, but I see it as, um, I see it as a uh, 
perduring, a constant state of union. And of course, we're made for that. All the spiritual writers, mm. echoing Thomas Aquinas, insist on this. That it goes, it goes uh, uh, beyond one particular school. Uh, everyone would, would, would agree with this, that we are made for this union with God. And this union with God must begin in this life if it is to be perfected uh, in eternity, in heaven. And so our Lord, um, our Lord is never too far out of our thoughts. St. Teresa, the child of Jesus, she says that pretty much she figured she thought about God at least every three minutes on average, uh, which is quite something if you think about it. And then, but then the higher you go in these, in these, you, you, you never, you never, you were never, um, at least subconsciously, some authors say, for some saints I'm sure it was pretty conscious, as for St. Teresa, even consciously out of the presence of God. You know, one of the stages of of prayer, they say, is to put yourself into the presence of God. Well, we need to put ourselves into God's presence. Not that we're not in His presence, but we need to put ourselves there because we forget. We get we get all worried about all of these different things in life that don't really matter at all, or we don't see them in the, the, that simple vision of the saints, uh, which is which is which enables us to <clears throat> catch everything in one glance, in one gl- in one glance, and that glance has God at its very heart. So we get distracted. So we put ourselves in the presence of God. Well, by this. Uh, uh, prayer of union, the this, this state of contemplation, then God is, he's in our view. He's never not in our view. And everything is seen in his light. In Luminetu, O Domine, Videvi, Muslim, in my light, O Lord, we shall see the light. Um, that's that's the teaching of the common doctor, I think. And that's the, that's the common, you might say, mystical theology mm. of the church. But what's important to stress um, we agreed earlier that the average layman is not necessarily going to pick up the Summa and start reading. And, and indeed, sometimes to do that is harmful to one's spiritual life, not the least as you fall into error or you'll be tempted to pride. But uh, everybody, every layman and every priest and every bishop is called to the state of union with God, to what we call ordinary contemplation. And it's fed and prepared uh, by by a life of a regular life, uh, a life of prayer, a life of the church's prayer, and uh, if we allow ourselves, God will come in. Um, they say of Saint Teresa, what you could also say of any saint and mystic. Uh, I read it this morning at Laud, the Canticle of mm-hmm. Moses. It's applied to Saint Teresa in particular. Dominus solus duxeus fuit. The Lord alone was her teacher or her leader. But you could certainly say that about Thomas Aquinas, too. And in the sense of any saint, because it's the Lord, the Holy Ghost, who, who is going to lead and, and lead into these new paths, these new discoveries that are old and at the same time new, at least in their, at least in some, their emphasis, maybe, or the way of putting things together in a slightly different way. Um, so our, our, if we allow him to, our Lord will lead us. He wants to lead to lead all of us and lead us into this guy. So again, you see the simplicity. You 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 can't. Well, you have to make time for prayer and for the mm. formal liturgical prayer, as well as for Lexio Divina, the reading, meditation, and and then just quiet prayer too. Very important. At the same time, uh, you can't make a strict division any more than Thomas Aquinas did. Uh, 
of uh, well, now this is for God, you might say, and this is for man. Once you're in this, as you're, as you're moving towards the state, shall we say, God's always in your glance. You're never not in the presence, one way or another, of uh, Almighty God. Of course, for Thomas Aquinas, as it would be for so many saints, this should be a comfort to us, um, because we're human, you can't do two things at once necessarily. <laughs> so, so you have the great story of Thomas Aquinas at the banquet given by St. Louis in the ninth, yes. and in, with all the royal, all the nobility and everything. And then, and and he's um, he's we would say spaced out or zoned out. He's in his own world, and everyone's sort of respecting that about him. And all of a sudden, he pounds his fist on the table, and he says that clinches it for the Manichaeans. <laughs> and everybody, you know, stops their conversation and that looks towards him for some some pearls of wisdom he's got nothing else to say but uh but they, they indulgently accept this interruption of the banquet because they know that something very great is going on inside his head that's and, right i believe st louis is supposed to have asked a, a servant to go and fetch um somebody a, yes. a secretary to come and uh, take down any yeah. dictation that he might have on the subject might have yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did, did that ever happen to you? You, you, you get this idea, and you think to yourself, that's brilliant. This is exactly what I need to write. And then by the time you get around to being able to write it down, it's too late. <laughs> yes, that's probably, me, it usually happens while I'm sleeping. And, uh, it's just, yes, I've tried keeping notes, paper, uh, notepaper and pens next to my bed. Of course, of course, for the kids today, they have the iPads and all this other stuff. Yeah, and you just you whip the cell phone out of your pocket, and you, you, you press a couple of buttons and then you can Speak record your wisdom for, mm. for all eternity <laughs> <laughs> absolutely it's interesting yeah. that you, you mentioned that close connection between prayer and, and, and liturgy uh, and mm-hmm. you were talking about how St. Thomas's own prayer life was fed so much by the liturgy by, by that continual uh, feasting as it were on, on the yeah. words of the church in, in the office, yeah. in the divine oh, office yeah. in, in, in the mass and it's often seemed to me that, that uh, I mean, I try to, to, to read as much of the liturgy as I can as well. Mm-hmm. And it, that, I do get that sense that it's, it's that way that I stay close to our Lord and, and Our Lady because yeah. I'm thinking about them all the time in the words of the Church herself, particularly in the Psalms. And you, you, you've mentioned on other occasions how there is a kind of close connection between the saints and where they occur in the calendar, in the feast. Yes. Uh, and with that in mind, since St. Thomas's feast is coming up now in the middle of Lent, I wondered whether you had any observations about why it is that St. Thomas appears either in late Septuagesima season or, or in Lent in the calendar of the Church. What, what special reason is there for him being a Lenten saint rather than a saint of Easter or Christmas tide or some other season? Well, I, I think in, in the sense that would. Um there's something about Thomas Aquinas, although because we're human and we love him and we love all of our saints, we try to find, we look for the human and we look for the charming and and we look for the comfortable. Nevertheless, he's the sublime, so he's the angelic saint. He's a saint who is, in a sense, out of our reach. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not a warm, fuzzy, popular, devotional saint. He's not an Anthony of Padua. Or Saint Nicholas, he's um, he he is uh, uh, he he is he is the he is, he is the, the the scholastic. He's the the man of books. He's the man of of high intellectual attainment and great great self discipline. Um, he's a Lenten saint in a word. That's and so all of us, at least a little bit in our lives, want to resolve each year during Lent 
to to do well to 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 work on our spiritual lives uh to pray to give more time to prayer but don't forget and again this would be the continuity now what does saint benedict say about lent and this would this would have been the the training saint saint thomas as a boy would have heard the holy rule read a little bit each day and then commented on too um he says the life of a monk ought to be lenten in character at all times but given human weakness, we do need a we do need an annual retreat and a time for real prayer and penance. Then the one the one thing he circles or distinguishes for Lent is that everybody should read a book, and the Father Abbot will pass the books out, and and you read the book and then you you give the book back at the end of Lent. I've tried to do that in the parish sometimes with adults or or with children over the years, even to induce them to do a book report. So Thomas Aquinas, he's our man of books. You know all the volumes and the volumes that he has written, um, and all the, all the summary which we find in the church's official prayer book, the 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 missal and the breviary. So uh, maybe that's meant to be a lesson to us that we well we honor an austere, uh, cerebral, very supernatural saint who does have a human side. But if you you can read it in the book, if you re- if you read enough books about him, you you get a well balanced picture of his character. But um, we should be like Thomas Aquinas. It wouldn't kill us to read a book, to set some time aside. Most Catholics don't. They, they never read. People don't read books anymore at all. They don't read magazines or articles. They might look at things on the Internet, uh, but that's about it. So we, we have to get back to that. And the idea of reading, uh, not just uh, grazing, as we say, but actually to read a book and to stay with the book, uh, that's a wonderful thing. Maybe that's his contribution. That's a very good, uh, a very good uh, positive thought. I think your excellency. And I was wondering, uh, reading a book, for those of us who want to know more about Saint Thomas and and the theology of the Church, thinking of the Church, uh, where are the best places to start with with his thinking? Well, who should we, who um, should the lay people start? Where should I've they just, start if they want to know more about Saint I've Thomas? I've just said about you know the importance of. Uh, of uh, not just grazing, but actually sitting down and reading a book. And I, one one of the books which fell to my hand in preparation for this show is it was uh, Chesterton, the Dumb Ox. That's an excellent book, and it's it's uh, it's not it's available as a paperback. It's not very big, and he has a very congenial style, and he has a good way of explaining even even shall we say the difficult bits of um, bits, but I mean the, the whole philo- idea of scholastic philosophy and theology. He's a, Chesterton is a very good approach, and it's something worth investing in and staying with. But now, if I may contradict my advice, I would say, on the other hand, when it comes to reading about Thomas Aquinas or any saint, I have found that absolutely, especially for us who don't have all that much time, absolutely the best approach is to build up a library or if the use perhaps of the internet, prudent use of the internet, make a library accessible to you. Read um, a little from a lot. Read a read a little bit, uh, an article, a chapter, um, a, a little synthesis, uh, a, a, a abbreviation of his life from as many authors as possible. Because every author will give you his own viewpoint, a little bit of a different idea. And if you stay with those, um, if, if you if you graze that way, you'll be able to form for yourself um, your understanding of the saint, and then 
he becomes yours. It's like one of the stages of the mystical life and um, the gift of uh, the Holy Ghost gift of wisdom that this uh, that these wonderful treasures that are on the outside transubstantiation uh, all and all the doctrines of the faith aren't just on the outside anymore. In this case, I would include in it the saint. Uh, who, who is he? Who is he as a man? Who is he as a man of God? What was his life like? What does his life give us today? Uh, I don't think that any one book would um, would summarize it sufficiently for us. And so read a lot of books, and because modern age, we, 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 have to, we have to, we're in a rush, just a little bit here, a little bit there. Uh, look them up a lot. Find, get, get as many, have a home library, develop that, if you buy books, if you possibly can, and then and have books around for children. Uh, encourage them to read and look things up and just read a little bit at a time. The, I found with the saints that the more I read, the more I learn. And you, I don't, I don't think you can put all your eggs in one basket. It's, the saints are just too big for any one author to be able to begin to exhaust or even properly to maybe sufficiently or adequately to uh, to present. The life of a saint. Every author, this is fascinating, is going to have a little bit of a different take on a saint. And the more you read, um, the more you get past the uh, what we could call in the in the biographies of saints um, the pious filter. That is to say, uh, this remnant of the 19th century in which authors were very careful to be edifying, and they had to be they had to sort of remove anything which would be disedifying. So you wouldn't write about. Uh, Thomas's cousin invading Monte Cassino as being the occasion for his uh, and for his entrance into the Dominicans, in effect, because that wouldn't be edifying. Or in 13th greatest of centuries, but look at poor Saint Gertrude and her nuns. You know, the convent invaded the cloister, invaded by some awful German count who was making a point about one thing or another. Uh, that that was the life of the greatest of centuries. It's a to learn those things is it's interesting and it's a comfort to us because our our life has its uh, jangling uh, 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 illogical elements and very very hurtful uh, upsets too. But it, it, it's only in reading a lot from uh, a little bit rather from a lot of authors that that, that you're going to get this sense, and with that sense, you'll be able to make the saint your own. And that's what I really wish our listeners or the Catholics or our Catholics would do. Lo- know the saints, love them, get to, get to know them. Um, you have to get beyond the point of being discouraged by a saint's sanctity and to the point where you could be encouraged by the saint's sublime humanity and your desire to imitate him in some sense. And it's all very simple because you know, this, 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 he, he is the doctor of simplicity, if you will. Uh, and um, everything gets united in the end. There's some kind of a synthesis, a, a good, not a Hegelian, but a good synthesis <laughs> that's going to emerge, I think, from your writing, or from your reading, rather, and your, your study. And, of course, your prayer, too, about the saints. The saints are our friends, and we should really get to know them in this sense. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the, the, the points that uh, Dom Guéranger makes in his liturgical year, that one of the reasons that he felt he ought to write this book was because the saints weren't loved enough, and it was an opportunity to write about the saints, you know, yeah. as they're presented in the liturgy, which he he, he recommends. I, I find reading, would... sorry, sorry, I find reading um, Alban Butler's um, 
I can't in the original, uh, even though it's rather long for for most people. It's a very uh, good and interesting and edifying, as you say, source of information about uh, the saints. He was a great scholar as well as uh, a hagiographer. I find Alvin Butler to be severely edifying. Mm. If I need to be sort of, uh, you know, um, uh, sort of called on the carpet, as it were, and sort of brought up short, I'll read some Alvin Butler. It's very good for my soul. Uh, And I'm always amazed at the contemporary critics of Alvin Butler um, in much later edition by the English Jesuit and quondam part-time modernist um, Thurston. He was accused of, of, of modernism, and justly so, uh, because if you can possibly uh, dismantle a miracle, you count on him to do it. But they accused uh, Alvin Butler of the same thing. That always amazes me, because um, it's his writing is so supernatural and so sublime and mm-hmm. it's um it's a kind of a perfect spiritual reading album butler is because he he gives he gives you the high ideals he makes you feel that you are truly a lazy worthless bum <laughs> and what business do you have occupying pew space on sunday you're just you're nothing at all yet at the same time um, he fills you with a desire to do at least a little something towards imitating it, or at least being humble about it that you haven't managed to do anything so far. So mm. Alvin Butler, I'd, certainly I'd recommend very, very mm. warmly. Well, as a bookseller, I'm always happy to hear people recommending that uh, people buy many books and develop their own personal library, so that's very welcome advice. Oh, uh, I should also add that I think one one source for those who don't have much money and still would like to read widely, as you're suggesting, is... Um, a website which is not affiliated to any particular organization. It's called archive.org, which is effectively uh, uh, producing facsimile copies for free download of library holdings of libraries all around the world. And there's a huge wealth of Catholic literature uh, waiting to be read in its original form um, on archive.org. So I can't recommend that highly enough, even though it's not a Catholic website. Uh, I've certainly yes. downloaded hundreds and hundreds of books from it myself, which I, I read on my iPad, being a, a young un, or a young a younger one. <laughs> yes. Um, and then, if you if you just um, uh, think about reading for a moment, obviously so important in the life of Thomas Aquinas, so important in the right uh, in, in 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 his his, his influence upon us today. That um, as I said before, people don't read anymore. People people need to read. Our Catholics, instead of um, wasting their precious free time on the ephemera of life and you know, following, say, American politics or some nonsense and vanity like that, is to use the time for these classics, for the soul, uh, it's restful, relaxing, challenging, mm-hmm. elevating, educating, obviously, and encouraging, deeply, deeply encouraging. Nobody who's well-founded in... Um, in spiritual reading, properly understood, would ever give way to despair. There's 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 a wonderful and a holy hope, and uh, and, a, and a and a holy desire to to uh, imitate the saints and, and to grow in sanctity as a result of all uh, as, as a result of everything that that, that we've read. People, are abs- that's the one crucial essential thing you absolutely have to read. But then, well, how do you read? Don't just read out of. Um, out of interest to look things up. Of course, we all do that, and and it's fun, it's recreation. But try to read, as uh, St. Philip Neri says, try to read um, with with prayer. So if the Holy Ghost wants you to to stop at a certain point, if he has something to tell you about something, like with Alvin Butler, um, uh, stop, 
think about that. Meditate on it. Talk to our Lord about it a little bit. And that way, you, again, you have a simplicity or spiritual reading seeds, and in a sense, it becomes your your meditation or your prayer, your mental prayer. And uh, there, there isn't that there isn't that strict division, as it were, between these disciplines. I think, especially because we don't have that much time, uh, I think it's more of, oh, I guess you'd call it a holistic approach that uh, is liturgical and scriptural and patristic and is a very good way to look at things. Thank you. I wonder, just as, as a finishing question, because uh, we're almost out of time now, whether you might have any recommendations for, for uh, Catholic faithful uh, to incorporate something of St. Thomas into their Lenten devotions. Is there something, a prayer perhaps, that is particularly useful to, to, for their meditations or prayer at the moment, or something to do with our saint that they could usefully incorporate into their daily routine? Um, you, you, you will find in, the, in many editions of the uh, vernacular daily missal, you will find his um, prayers for before Holy Communion, those are very edifying and very useful, and I would certainly, I would certainly recommend uh, them. I was intrigued to know one thing that, um, just in my own devotional life, uh, is the uh, the idea of some special prayer that's said at the elevation of the mass. Now we know that um, uh, Saint Pius X uh, gave a, an indulgence to those who look up at the sacred host, adore, and say, "My Lord and my God." But all of the saints have their own, because they heard Mass as well as in the case of a priest offering Mass, all of the saints have their own devotional prayers, and it's not to be surprised that Thomas Aquinas would have them. And he uh, said the last half or so of the Te Deum. So I'm thinking that, mm-hmm. um, especially for Lent, if, if some some of our audience might be, might be open to the idea of um, familiarizing themselves with some prayers that Thomas Aquinas wrote himself, such as the Laudation or the Pange Lingua, uh, to read them a little bit and then maybe incorporate them into into their spiritual lives, because that's, remember that's a compendium of, of of Eucharistic theology, or maybe to imitate the saint in in the employment of liturgical prayers. Liturgical prayers have a different. Uh, they're, they're a bit like Thomas Aquinas himself. At the beginning, it might seem out of reach and a little austere, shall we say. Yet at the same time, when we pray them slowly, the unction, the devotion comes, and the whole new world opens to us. So Thomas Aquinas liked to pray the last half of the Te Deum uh, at the elevation of the Blessed Sacrament at Mass, beginning with the Thou art King of, of Glory, Christ, who mm-hmm. Rex Gloria Christe. Um, and he said, he said it slowly and, and devoutly, that from that verse all the way to the end. Many of our Catholics might not even be familiar with the Te Deum, which is a shame, because it's such a such a wonderful prayer of the Church of, of uh, going, going back virtually to, every day. <laughs> yeah, and said virtually every day. Yes, said virtually every day, and it's the Church's official um, prayer of Thanksgiving. The Te Deum. Uh, that that might be interesting. To that would give you a little bit of a sense or a flavor. Um, another way, uh, as, as I mentioned before, about the, uh, the Blessed Sacrament prayer, so then he has a prayer, we have a prayer on the Missal then for before Mass, and uh, that, w- that gives you, that prayer before Mass gives you, as well as a prayer after Mass, it gives you a real s- sense or a taste for Thomas Aquinas. Say it devoutly and slowly, 
and it would help you to have a better sense and taste for the Blessed Sacrament itself. So, uh, really, if you're talking about books, really the only book they say that you need is uh, the Church's prayer book, in the first place, of course, which is the Missal. So everybody should have a Missal. Everyone should be reading the Mass. The Mass will give you the daily Mass, especially now in Lent. Let me put in a plug for this, because it's Mm. one of my devotions. (laughs) Especially now in Lent, you might not be able to get to daily Mass, but you, you should not deprive yourself of the treasure that is to be found in the daily Masses of Lent, the ancient Lenten Masses, which take us back to the early centuries of the Roman uh, liturgical life. Um, Catholics might study the Scripture. They would do very well to study the Scripture. They would be highly rewarded if they do so. But most Catholics are not, for a lot of reasons, um, drawn towards that. We kind of view that, oh, that's for Protestants. Uh, so uh, a, a good a good introduction to that is again your missal. Read the the little pericopes, read the, the the epistles, read the lessons, the Old Testament saints. You find you mentioned earlier about the um, um, uh, Elias. The, the Thomas Aquinas' reference is one of the Corpus Christi responsories yeah. to Elias, you know, sleeping under the juniper tree and in the strength of that food. This is the verse gets re- gets repeated in the responsory to a wonderful. Yeah. Gregorian melody, and the strength of that food, he walked into the mountain of God, Horeb. Well, that's our Lent, and the strength of the food of the Scripture, prayer, and especially the Blessed Sacrament. So um, maybe in, in a Thomistic spirit, one might start, again, simplicity, which is a very simple way. You have your daily Mass. Read it. Read it quietly. Read it prayerfully. Pray it, and then unite with it. You could use one of Thomas Aquinas' beautiful Eucharistic prayers or a part of it. Make an act of spiritual communion. And voila, there you have it. You have a all of a sudden really substantial nourishment for your soul, and you're a little bit connected with the great angelic doctor. Yeah, that uh, sounds like very good, positive advice. Thank you, Your Excellency. Oh, You've been listening to uh, Restoration Radio, and we've been talking about St. Thomas Aquinas, whose feast it is this uh, coming Thursday. And uh, we've had on the show, once again, uh, His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. And I would like to thank him once again for what's once more a very informative, useful, and, dare I say, entertaining discussion. Uh, oh, you're, you're, you're very welcome indeed. <laughs> thank if, you. I'm, if I may take a moment, Piers, to welcome uh, anyone who would like to tune in with us on our sgg.org website. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. we, we will be having a solemn high mass in honor of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas at the 1120 Eastern Standard Time, United States. Um, and uh, that it will be it will be a beautiful mass, and you'll be able to hear a little bit more about St. Thomas, and you'll hear some of the the, the hymns of St. Thomas chanted, and it unite with us virtually or in spirit as we honor uh, the uh, the angel of the schools, uh, the angelic mm-hmm. doctor, the church's common teacher, St. Thomas Aquinas. Very good, thank you. You're Restoration Radio is a production of True Restoration Publishing and Media. Uh, I have been your host tonight, Piers Hugo, and we will leave you with another chance to hear St. Thomas's divine hymn, Pange Lingua. Oh, oh.
to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.